Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to the first episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our interview for this episode is Tanushri Ganguly. Tanushri is an environmental engineer turned policy researcher. She currently works with the Council on Energy, Environment and Water in India. Our guest today is an expert on modeling and forecasting of air pollution. He is a TED fellow, a member of the World Health Organization's Air Quality Guidelines Development Group and the director of Urban Emissions, which he founded with the vision to be a, rep- a repository of information, research and analysis related to air pollution in India. His organization's Air Pollution Knowledge Assessment, or APNA City Program, reports on emissions and modeling results from 50 cities in India, each with a population of more than 1 million. In addition to writing scientific papers and policy briefs, He also frequently writes newspaper articles, blog posts, and comic strips to educate a wide range of audience. I am excited to welcome Dr. Sharath Gutikunda. Welcome both. Thank you, Shahzad. Hi, Sharath. How are you? How are you enjoying the blue skies? I'm going well. Um, I'm actually sitting in a very, very humid environment. Uh, but it's it's good. Uh, It's good to have some fresh air, which is not uh, riddled with any pollutants. You know what, I'm seeing a lot of posts from people all across Delhi and Gurgaon. We've actually witnessed rainbows this evening. Isn't it amazing? Um, So for our listeners, um, I've known Sarath for the past uh, two years now. Um, Sarath, you are pretty much the uncrowned king of AQ, air quality data analytics in the country. Um, Whatever is our understanding of pollution sources in Indian cities and the extent to which these sources contribute to air pollution largely comes from your research. And I personally recently had the good fortune of working with you while reviewing the clean air plans which were made by Indian cities in response to the National Clean Air Program. To be very honest, I did not anticipate seeing such blue skies so soon. Did you? No, absolutely not. I mean, that's one of the things that we put in the review as well, saying we really need a coordinated action from all the sectors in all the cities if we really want to achieve uh, such big drops uh, as discussed in the National Clean Air Program. And what we are seeing today is exactly that. But instead of seeing a coordinated action, we have a forced experiment. Interesting. Uh, forced experiment. Uh, this is something that you also referred to in uh, one of uh, New Yorker articles in which you were recently quoted. Would you like to explain why you are referring to this uh, sudden appearance of blue skies as a natural experiment? Mm, yes. I mean, we had experiments before, but those were more of uh, special instances. Now, for example, in India, we have something called Band, which is if a political party or a, a public group uh, uh, tries to do a protest, you have certain sections of the cities are closed down for all the commercial and the traffic activity. So you, you will, on an instance like that, you have some kind of drop. And even during national festivals, for example, national holidays, Republic Day or even Diwali, you have a sudden drop in a certain level of activities. But what we are seeing 
in, in the past three weeks, and this is the fourth week of the lockdown, is basically a coordinated drop in pretty much everything that we can think of. I mean, traffic is down to, like, to the bare minimum. All the factories are closed. Uh, some of the cooking activity that would have happened uh, in the construction sector, the labor uh, groups, that's pretty much vanished out of the uh, system. And uh, we have a big drop in the, even in the heavy industry. Uh, so for example, the power sector, I think we have a 25% drop in the uh, overall generational load in the country. So all these came out at the same time and in a, as if it was coordinated. And it really basically brought down levels in pollution uh, across the board. And we're seeing that in the cities, we're seeing that in the rural areas. Uh, I mean, you, you might have seen some of these pictures. Uh, I think even some of your colleagues were posted earlier uh, about out of Jalandhar, you could see the Himachal, Himachal Pradesh, uh, Himachal range, uh, a range of mountains in the Himalayas. You could see them like 200 kilometers away from the spot. And some of the old people were saying that you know, something like that was never seen in like 30 years, 40 years. So which is, on one side, it's really beautiful. Uh, but it's also the only reason why we are seeing that is because uh, of this uh, huge experiment that's going on, like not just in the cities, but across the country. In fact, across the globe. Right. Uh, Sharath, if I may ask you, um, a lot of uh, young researchers, they keep a track of air quality data, which is basically the data which gets reported by monitoring stations. And on the basis of those data points, they sort of give inferences on how air quality has improved or deteriorated. But when we talk about your setup, it's way more comprehensive than just looking at trends of concentrations of pollutants, right? So if you could briefly explain to our listeners what your setup is like and what you do, how you do, and how this basically translates into relevant information about polluting sources and pollution in cities, states, across borders. I think you are being very, very generous. <laughs> um, we do have a comprehensive system, but it's a, an evolving system. And every day we are learning. I think that's the main part. When, when we talk about modeling activities, it's not something uh, that you take a database from uh, a from a site or from a group and put it into a model and you get something out of it. I mean, what we're trying to do is basically replicate or understand what we're seeing in the reality. And the reality is, is this coming from the monitoring data. So at the end of the day, maybe we want to basically work with the monitoring data and because that's the ground truth thing. And that's what gives us the trends in uh, in the air pollution, uh, each of these air pollutants, whether going up or coming down, where are the hotspots? But uh, it, it also comes with a tag of uh, high finances. I mean, if you want to run 100 monitors, you have a very high price associated with that. So the only way to bridge that gap is is through this modeling activity. But I mean, I'm keeping it very simple. But the modeling itself takes a lot of effort. You need a lot of, lot of data. And that is something we are always in the search for. And if you, if you go back even five years ago or six years ago, even 10 years ago, the kind of data that was available for any of these sectors, I mean, it was really uh, hard to put a coherent story. But now we are able to kind of build that story. And thanks to a lot of digital revolution in that, sec in that uh, process. 
So as simple as, um, let's say, if, if you want to find out uh, how congested is the city. I mean, 10 years ago, it was very, very difficult. But now, you know, groups like Google uh, and a, a couple of other private companies, I mean, they have access to uh, like cell phone movements across the country. And they can tell you exactly I mean, how fast uh, um, these cell phones are moving, whether uh, a bunch of these cell phones are sitting in a bus or are they sitting in a car or a motorcycle. They can actually separate out all these trends and tell you uh, how congested a city is. I mean, this was not possible uh, to, to do this five years ago. But having that kind of information in hand, we can use that to uh, model the transport sector that much better. I mean, not just for the operations in the city uh, to, you know, to have an intelligent transport system put in place for the buses or to tell which route to take which is faster, but we can also use it to understand air pollution. I mean, if you have groups or, or a, a sections in the city where you're consistently seeing red, it, which means that you have a lot of congestion, which means you have a lot of wastage of fuel, which means you have a lot of emissions coming from there, and then that translates into pollution not just for the traffic, traffic cop that's sitting there or standing there, but also anybody who's sitting there at the junction. So this kind of information is really vital. And I mean, every day when we are doing modeling, we're looking for resources like these as granular as possible that will eventually help us in putting together a coherent story. So in simple terms, yes, monitoring data is something that's very basic and we want that in as much detail as possible. But modeling data will take that monitoring data one step further in explaining why a number is high or low and, uh, and to find out where, like which sector or what source could be contributing to that number. So it's, it's an evolving process and this is something that we are pretty much learning every day. Thank you, Sharad. That was a very comprehensive and explanatory answer. But uh, it gets, gives rise to two um, fundamental questions. One is, uh, I mean, th this is something that I would personally want to know. Uh, when you envisioned and started urban emissions back in 2007, was this what you wanted to do? Like you rightly pointed out, over the past decade, um, the world has gone through an information revolution of sorts, right? There is a lot of information that has come in and that has enabled formation of these systems. So how has Correct. that sort of, um, a, how did you sort of change your strategy or modify your strategy with the uh, information that sort of came in over the course of years? And the other thing that, that you just talked about that, you know, eventually we do need to look at numbers, but then what's in a number? for people who have applications on their phone and they are looking at these numbers, um, how do they find an association with the number? Uh, what I want you to explain to our listeners is that what exactly is clean air? Is, is a number representative of clean air? So those two questions, if you could address. Um, yeah, so I mean, you, you talk about information revolution, but uh... Uh, sometimes it's also information overload uh, in some cases. I mean, we really don't know uh, what to do with some of the information. So it, it, it's something that we really have to be very careful about. I mean, we, we want to tell a story, but uh, I mean, we don't want to uh, burden either the listener or the reader with information that 
I mean, they really don't understand. Uh, I think this is where I think your, your question of like what is clean air really comes in. I mean, we, we have lots of numbers thrown, on, uh, thrown at us at all the time, uh, both in terms of air quality, emissions, models, uh, all these feeds coming from uh, different different sectors on gen power generation and all these things. So we really need to be careful on uh, on this information uh, overload. So uh, to very simple, I mean, if we want to simply explain uh, what is clean air and what kind of number is uh, is is can they represent that? I think that's one of the reasons why we have these air quality index codes, right? So we really want to dump it down and, and for the general public to say, okay, if it is green, which is good. You know, if it is yellow, moderate. You know, orange, red, brown, the more deeper the colors, it, it's basically it's, you're getting into a, a, a different kind of territory. So you have to be more careful uh, and adjust your movements accordingly. But I mean, it's, it's one of the biggest questions that we have to grapple with everywhere. Uh, and I think, for example, some of the discussions that we are having under the, the air quality uh, guidelines committee groups are basically defining this. Like, what is air quality? What is clean air? Uh, because every country has their own standards. Um, every country has their own air, air quality index codes. And can we have a unified code that will kind of explain what is clean air for across the globe. I mean, that's, that's actually a really big challenge. And we do have to customize to, uh, to our natural environments. For example, uh, being in India, we know that uh, we live in a very dusty environment. Even if we clean out all our roads, I mean, we, we have a very arid region to our west, and we have enough winds passing through throughout the year. Uh, we'll have some form of dust dust events, and we have um, all these dry plateaus across the country. We'll have dust eventually anyway. Uh, we are surrounded by the sea in the peninsula, which means that we have a constant amount of sea salt uh, blowing across. So we have a natural background uh, that will probably not let us get to the WHO guidelines. But I mean, we our definition of clean air would be uh, embedded in like our own standards. Right. Um, I think you've you've touched upon very interesting points. Uh, you've talked about dust being a prominent pollutant in our country. You've uh, touched upon sea salt, uh, but we're still talking about the space of particulate pollution. Uh, but there are, I mean, there are standards for other pollutants as well. And in one of your more recent articles, you've actually, you know, very beautifully explained how every pollutant says a different story. So if you could touch a little bit upon that, that how is it that every pollution has its own story to tell? I think by, by virtue of being in India, we always talk about PM 2.5 particulate matter all the time. Uh, but it's also very, very important that we talk about other pollutants as well. Um, and uh, the the current experiment that the the lockdown has also revealed some of these features. Uh, for example, I mean, those are those are the features that we explained in the article. Uh, PM two point five definitely with a big drop in almost all the combustion sectors. We see the drop anyway. Uh, you look at uh, NOx nitrogen oxides. We have NO and NO two. Uh, those are the that that's a dramatic pollutant. I mean, you're especially in the city where the monitoring stations are, 
they recorded a immediate drop in the nitrogen oxides pollu- uh, concentrations because your majority of your source is vehicle exhaust and with more than 90% of the vehicles out of the system your nox emissions have completely uh, out of the city uh, air so there was a significant drop in that uh, but you go into other pollutants other two pollutants which are a little bit dormant like so2 sulfur dioxide um, we don't see a big change in that mainly because uh, in the cities mainly in the big cities we already have uh, bharat standard 6 fuel which is equivalent to euro standard 6 fuel which has the least amount of sulfur uh, content i think we have now 15 ppm sulfur uh, diesel in the city and there is so even before the lockdown the sulfur pollution was already to the bare minimum because of this new fuel in the system so it really didn't make a huge difference in the overall concentrations of so2 and the other source of so2 is basically coal burning that's happening at the power plants mostly uh, surrounding the city areas and those are working at a lower uh, uh, load but they were still working so the drop in the so2 was not so much Uh, so it was very interesting. So some pollutants like PM two point five, NO two, it's very dramatic drop, and then SO two not so much. And you have carbon monoxide, also a very important uh, pollutant in the atmosphere for the background levels and also for the health. Uh, that also didn't change so much because your your biggest uh, contributor is again, it's actually a big background pollutant has a very long atmospheric lifetime about two months. So. it kind of stayed there for at least a week or so and slowly slowly dropped but dropped not as much as the other pollutants but more important is the ozone while other pollutants have seen a drop or constant uh, over the last four weeks when the ozone is something that's really creeping up and that's actually uh, uh, it emphasize it actually puts a lot of uh, interest on that pollutant and a theory that was always a theory before but we we could never um, have have a proof for it is whether indian cities are um, the volatile organic compound limited or they are nox limited uh, regime for ozone production and what we are seeing now is a proof that we are really are a voc limited environment uh, which means that we as we are reducing our nox emissions ozone levels are actually going up and many of you know very very simple terms without going into the chemistry uh, if you look at the two components of nox the nitrogen oxide you have no and you have no2 uh, no basically eats ozone and no2 actually makes ozone uh, i mean in the presence of voc so i'm i'm not really going into all the chemistry lessons here so with the entire nox out and there is no no left to eat the ozone so slowly the background concentrations have crept up um I mean in general ozone levels in our indian cities are not as bad as uh, as uh, we see in eu and us uh, i mean we, we very rarely get into a yellow or a red zone for the ozone um, ozone pollution but I mean what we have seen in the in the last four weeks uh, it really puts uh, the chemistry atmospheric chemistry into perspective uh, what what changes Uh, are we there are there in the secondary chemistry for the particulates and what chemistry is what what photochemistry is uh, is active in, in these cities 
And it's really is, I mean, on one side, I would like to say that it's an exciting time for the atmospheric chemists, uh, but also at the same time, <laughs> there is nice clean air outside and I can't go out. <laughs> <laughs> That's indeed the irony. But Sarah, before we move to the next question, I would like you to explain what VOCs are and where these VOCs creep into the atmosphere from. Uh, we have um, VOCs from two different sources. We have anthropogenic sources, and also we have uh, natural sources. So anthropogenic sources are any of the solvent activities when you have VOCs coming out. Um, and as simple as uh, when you have a lot of evaporative emissions happening at the petrol bunks, at the petrol stations, the gas stations, so that, that, part, that forms part of your VOCs. Most of the uh, refining activities, they also produce a lot of VOCs that we need to account for. Um, and uh, on the natural emissions, we have basically uh, biogenics. If we have a lot of green area and enough time, if the meteorology uh, helps to, you know, uh, helps in the direction, you have a good amount of isoprene and terpene and monoterpenes. They also come out. I mean, those are a big chunk of the VOCs that we have in the, in the system. So those are natural emissions are fairly constant. I mean, they have a seasonal cycle, but they're there all the time. Uh, but uh, what we are seeing is a, some drop in the VOCs from the anthropogenic side. But the biggest drop is basically coming from the NOx side, which is driving the chemistry, which is tilting the chemistry, ozone chemistry in the cities. Understood. So I want to just, uh, you know, draw a string from something that you mentioned earlier, that this is a very exciting time for atmospheric chemists, right? Uh, so it, this would be a good time to sort of get into your background a little bit. How is your background different from that of an atmospheric chemist? And um, and was, I mean, what what has been sort of your intellectual motivation or inspiration for doing what you are doing right now? Um, I think for work-wise, why I'm in the atmospheric field, um, I think it, it also it goes really goes back to my uh, undergraduate days in the in the late 90s. Uh, the one of the couple of projects that we did as undergrads, uh, we were looking at um, what's the what's a good combination of amino acids that will reduce SO2 that will absorb sulfur dioxide and carbon dioxide emissions in the in the refineries. I mean, it was a um, sponsored project that we had um, in the chemical engineering department, and we were working on that. And that kind of led to, I mean, it sounded very interesting to, to work on these uh, air pollutants. And then we, a uh, bunch of our friends, we applied for PhDs and, and we started working more and more into that. So uh, some of the, the, the components of air pollution modeling, uh, that's something kind of picked up on the job over the years. But the, the roots themselves are, they go back to undergrad days. I, mean, I wasn't really seeking it, but uh, a good project came out, and uh, that led to one led to the other, and uh, kind of st stuck to this. Um, where the the inspirations and all come from? I think in those days, I mean, you have to understand that there was no social media. I mean, there was no Twitter. There was no internet. Uh, there was not not even a single email. Um, if if I when we were all of us students, when we were applying for. Uh, uh, masters and PhD programs, like 10 of us were using one email address of uh, one of the advisors, which means that I mean, everybody was reading everybody's emails. 
Um, so there, there was no such thing as, you no, know, I'll go to the internet and read about what everybody is doing. It's basically, you know, discussions with friends and cousins and uh, reading some articles in the newspaper or, or hanging around in the library, picking up some books and finding out what's going on everywhere. And when that, that's what you know, uh, led to some subjects to work on a little bit more. Interesting. So uh, do you think this whole uh, lockdown and the impact of lockdown on atmosphere can inspire more atmospheric chemists and more atmospheric modelers? What do you think? I mean, in terms of uh, training the new breed of uh, atmospheric scientists, what role is this uh, lockdown going to play? No, I think it's this. A lot of people are already thinking about it. I think the only bottleneck that we are going to face at the end is not having enough monitoring data to study in a lot more detail. But I mean, we we have a, a really good experiment in place. Uh, in in the modeling world, we we do simulate some clean environments, and this is the clean environment. Uh, so, what's the difference between uh, this four weeks and then the same four weeks in the previous year? Uh, what kind of changes are we seeing? Where are these changes coming from? I think when we, we have a, a, a really series of questions that we can actually answer, um, not just for the from an atmospheric chemistry perspective, but also from the policy perspective as well. Uh, I mean, if we, if we can drop NOx emissions by 90% by controlling like pretty much all the traffic. So how much of this can we replicate in the future? I mean, we have a, a case here, you know, and same thing goes with the, with the waste management, same thing goes with the domestic sector as well. And a lot of biomass burning that goes into the cooking sector has uh, suddenly stopped. So it actually has a huge impact on CO and, and some of the, uh, the black carbon and organic carbon components. So we have a, a lot of uh, chemistry questions and policy questions that we need to answer, and and there are I mean there are already some interesting people who are working on this topic, and more and more will join. I think this is where some of the the new people, whoever is doing a PhD right now, I think if they have some topic related to I want to study what's the impact of policy on air pollution, I think this is a really good experiment. And since this is happening everywhere, not just in India, I mean, it's happening in the US, it's happening in Italy, China, India, um, Africa, not to the same extent in some of the other regions, but I mean, we really have a case to study globally. You practically answered my next question. I was going to ask that, you know, of course, this, this setup has led to, a, led to a lot of research questions, but has also taught a lot of lessons in terms of how... Uh, Countries need to rethink economic activities and activities in general, be it uh, power generation or mobility. So thank you for answering the lessons bit as well. Um, we are almost uh, drawing close to the end of this episode. Um, I have to ask you, um, you have developed emission estimates for over 50 cities in the country. That's a mammoth task. I mean, you know, as a young researcher who wants to be able to do this, it's very intimidating. So I really need to know, how do you keep yourself going at it? <laughs> no, I think, uh, um, I think for that question, I think I'll, I'll, th I'll thank the digital world for it. Uh, because we're always finding something new. Uh, when I when people ask me, okay, how are you doing? So I'm saying I'm I'm learning. I'm learning 
every something new every day and i think that's what keeps me going and as far as the emissions itself goes yes the doing the 50 cities it really took us uh, three years to put that together but in the process we learned a lot of uh, uh, different new things and now in uh, how do we you know work with data large data and how do we work with different cities what kind of information is available what how can what can i uh, how can i massage some of this information to make it better so that that's was really really uh, crucial but but it's very important to understand that the modeling activity needs couple of things one is you really need to uh, be patient uh, modeling activity is something that i mean you can't do it in excel and you can't do it uh, in one day it takes time you have to be patient and some of these things are very very routine and you really need to be uh, in it uh, to do some of these routine work and that that's what uh, and it's very interesting and i'm not i'm not complaining at all and i don't think i'll ever complain uh, doing what i'm doing right now lovely so patience is the key and you have to be in it and you cannot complain about the routine aspect of modeling those are the golden words for all the aspiring modelers out there um final question uh is there any project or an upcoming interesting research base that you are working on and you would want uh listeners to eventually take a look at whenever it's out i think it actually links to your previous question or previous um, yeah uh, note that you made and we, we by virtue of being in india we put together this air pollution knowledge assessment uh, we in short we call it apna apna in hindi means our our city program uh, and we built uh, databases for these 50 air sheds uh, which cover about 60 cities but that's not the end um, and in, in fact I mean, what you and i have worked on in the national cleaner program reviews that actually include 122 cities which means that we like barely only like ha- scratched half the surface uh, we still have a lot more cities to go and we are trying to kind of fill that gap uh, and more importantly we we find that similar work I mean, building baselines for cities is the is the bare minimum you need if you want to jump start a policy discussion in any city and and this is something missing not just in india but everywhere I mean, if you go to any of the african cities a lot of the latin american cities um, balkan cities uh, you, you see a lot of gaps in this emission inventories and uh, kind of modeling what that is possible and i think we have enough uh, know how uh across the regions there are a lot of groups working on bits and pieces and what what we're trying to do is basically make this apna program more global and have more cities come under this umbrella where we uh, kind of start pulling together uh, stories in 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 one single fashion so that uh, we, we don't look at these studies as pilot studies like one off studies that uh, individual groups do but coming from one big source of uh, databases and and make it a lot more coherent study so i think we should definitely look after look forward to um, launching of this apna global soon so from ours from india to spreading its wings across the globe that's what in that's what is in store for urban emissions and for dr sharad kutikonda thank you so much thank you tanushree <laughs>
with that i would like to thank our interviewer tanushri ganguly and our guest dr sharad gutekunda for joining us on this episode of atmospheric tales thanks to all our listeners for tuning in don't forget to subscribe and share